We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Lord willing, we'll do verses 22 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll pick it up for a little bit of context. We'll start reading in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would show us your wisdom and your power through Christ our Savior and the gospel that we proclaim of him. God, please help us to guard against the temptations of compromise. Guard us against the fears that may come with persecution or suffering or even just mild rejection. God, please help us to see in Christ all the glories of God, to love him and serve him and proclaim him and live by him and for him and through him and to him. God, would you help us to be a people worshiping Christ no matter what and proclaiming Christ no matter what. And we ask that your spirit this morning would open our eyes to see this truth from your word, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would run to Christ for forgiveness and life. We ask in his name, amen. I keep running into a phrase, I actually end up reading a book by this title, and actually bumped into it again in a book I was reading this weekend. The phrase is this, keep Christianity weird. And uh, maybe it just caught my attention the first time I saw it because we're close enough to Portland, and that's the city motto of Portland, keep Portland weird. I assure you we mean some things different than they do. Uh, don't worry, we're not taking that left turn today. Um, <laughs> Or ever, I hope. But, but, but anyway, the, the more I thought about it, though, I, the phrase is kind of catchy. It, it makes a good book title. But the more I thought about it, the more I'd really take issue with the adjective, the, the weird part of it. I mean, because weird in describing Christianity could mean all sorts of things. It could mean, you know, the weird fundamentalist homeschoolers or, or the weird hip artsy church. I mean, there's a, a big spectrum, right? Weird in Christianity makes me think of bad music and bad movies. No, no offense, but just, we've got some weird ones. And then, or you could just make you think of like the smells and bells and icons of Eastern Orthodoxy, which are quite weird. I mean, let's be tru truthful, right? We Christians, we're weird in a lot of different ways. Uh, but must Christianity be weird? Is, is weirdness what we would get from the Bible and from history? Is, is weirdness something we need to preserve to keep, as the phrase goes. So I think no. And so I, I thought I'd propose a couple of new slogans, perhaps inspired by and with the approval of the Apostle Paul. For instance, keep 
Christianity scandalous, or keep Christianity foolish, or keep Christianity weak. Now, I'm obviously being a bit sarcastic because that's what Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but I think he would approve. I think he would like that attitude because if we're true to the gospel message, if we're true to the word of the cross, of Christ crucified and, and risen again, if we live our entire lives in light of Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, th then, then we will not be merely weird, um, but we'll be scandalous. We'll be considered by many as foolish and mocked as weak. If all we are is weird, I'm afraid that perhaps we've really missed the essence of the gospel because weirdness doesn't get people killed. Weirdness is not going to cost you that much. And most importantly, weirdness does not save the souls of sinners. Christ crucified does. The message of the gospel may get you killed. It may cost you greatly. Weirdness, it turns out, is not the wisdom and power of God. Christ crucified is. So if we're going to keep Christianity about anything, let's keep Christianity about Jesus Christ. That, that will seem to many scandalous and foolish and weak. Because the truth of the gospel is that it doesn't fit into this world. And so it is rejected and mocked. But the gospel calls people out. We, we've been looking at this in 1 Corinthians 1, talking about the temptation of the Corinthian church that they face to compromise the message of the gospel, right? Because it, it may be foolish to some, we're just going to dress it up with some eloquent wisdom. Or, or because it sounds absurd that God would change people by the death and resurrection of a Messiah, we're going to go ahead and, and add some new ways in which you might change. We're going to doubt. We're going to trans. Uh, we're going we're to transpose. We're going to adjust and compromise the gospel. Maybe you've faced similar demands in our day, that we would like the gospel to fit better into the world we live. Like, why is it that Jesus can't be more affirming? Or why can't Jesus be more woke? Or why can't Jesus be more conservative? Or why can't Jesus be more progressive? Why can't Jesus uh, fit the demands of our world a little bit better? Why can't he be more safe? Why can't he be more dangerous? I mean, it's just funny how, how we would want Jesus to fit into our demands. Because we have to really see that for what it is. Anytime we turn and ask Jesus to fit a little better onto this earth, we're making demands of God. We're asking for the creator to conform himself to the creation, and that's backwards. The truth is, people do not get to make demands of God. This is the point that Paul makes in verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, in Acts chapter 18 is where Paul founded the church in Corinth. And you may remember, it was actually a group of Jewish believers that started the church. But there were also Jewish Jews in Corinth who hated the Christians and wanted them prosecuted. Perhaps then, what, what the Corinthian Christians were facing years later is preaching a message to these Jewish Christians, and they say, oh, sure, we'll believe if you'd show us a sign. If you could do some sort of miracle to prove that God is really in this. Now, that may sound familiar because that's exactly what they did with Jesus, right? They, they demanded signs from Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus answered people that, that demanded signs from him? I'll give you just one clip from uh, Matthew chapter 12. They demanded a sign, and Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And that, that's how Jesus responded to people who demanded signs. You're evil and adulterous. 
And after all, didn't Jesus give him signs? I mean, he cast out demons. He healed the sick. He fed the multitudes. He raised the dead. What more could they want? What, what kind of sign are they looking for? But that's really the issue, right? They're not actually looking for a sign that proves the validity of Jesus. Those who demand signs are not really after being convinced that something is true. Rather, to demand signs proves a heart of unbelief because people who demand signs from God will never be satisfied. They can always write it off. They can always explain it away. I mean, not even if, as, as Eric read for us, someone rises from the dead. You remember what they did after Jesus rose from the dead? They paid people to make up a story about it. They denied it. They explained it away. Unbelief leads to making demands of God without actually wanting to be satisfied. So the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Now that might sound a little bit more polite. It's not. It's just as condemning. The Greeks seek wisdom. So just, just a little side note on language of the New Testament. So Paul will often talk about two groups of people, Jews and everything else. And the everything else he'll often call Gentiles, which would be a common Jewish distinction. Or here he might call them Greeks, particularly because Corinth was a city in Greece. And so there's sort of two dominant worldviews in Corinth. Jewish worldview and the Greek worldview. So just, just if you hear Greek, and as he's going to, in verse 23, he'll use it interchangeably with, with Gentiles. Just realize there's Jews and everybody else. So he's kind of painting two extremes here. So the Greeks seek wisdom. Now, seeking wisdom is one thing. Finding it is a whole nother. The Greeks weren't interested in answers. They were only interested in asking questions. It's as if this is not polite seeking. This is demanding that God satisfy our curiosities and entertain us. You may remember this from Athens in Acts chapter 17 when Paul, he went to Athens and, and it says, this is just Luke's little note here in Acts 17, 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the problem. Telling, hearing, asking, seeking, never arriving. Ne never getting to a conclusion. But Jesus came with answers. He didn't, didn't come just to give us something cute to think about, something new to satisfy our curiosity. Jesus came with truth. He fulfilled prophecy. He made promises. I mean, if, if you really wanted wisdom, Jesus has all of it. But if all you want from God is that he would satisfy your curiosity, that, God would, that Jesus would entertain you, he'd keep feeding you new things, you're going to find that Jesus will not satisfy that demand. Because Jesus is truth. He's ancient truth. He's perfect truth. He's complete truth. His truth demands your faith and allegiance. It's not the other way around. We don't get to demand that somehow Jesus would satisfy my curiosities. This is what I mean when I say the gospel doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the demands of this world. Verse 22, the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Right? There's a contrast here. We're not satisfying the demands. We're not answering the seeker. We are preaching the Christ. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The gospel meets the demands of this world as scandalous and moronic. And I'm choosing those words very carefully because in verse 23, remember, this letter was written in Greek. And in verse 23, the word stumbling block, or the phrase stumbling block in English, translates the Greek word scandalon. You don't have to know anything about Greek to realize that's where we get our word scandalous. 
And the word that's translated folly is the Greek word moria, from where we get the word moron. So, we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews, and moronic to the Gentiles. Maybe Paul's just making observations. Maybe he's just saying, listen, we understand that for the Jews to think of the Messiah hanging on a tree cursed by God is a scandal. That's true. It may be that he's saying, listen, we, I understand that for the, the Greeks who are so caught up in wisdom and knowledge and progress, they might be bored by the simple ancient teaching of a Jewish rabbi. That could be true. But Paul is saying more than just, oh, it doesn't work out. He's actually saying that when we preach Christ crucified, the cross exposes the emptiness and the wickedness of human demands. I mean, they may call us fools. They may hate us and reject us and mock us. But it's not because Christianity is just weird. It's because Christ crucified is offensive. Christ crucified, it, it destroys all of their constructs. Christ crucified calls people out. See, this is the real problem with the Jews and the Greeks, with the church in Corinth. It's the real problem, perhaps even with us. It isn't that Jesus doesn't meet our needs. It's that we don't want him to. See, that's a problem. Like, I mean, in your heart, do you actually want God to be God? Or would you rather demand him to be something that would satisfy you? See, the essence of faith is to make no demands of God, but rather to receive everything that he is and everything that he says joyfully. So you should probably do some examination. Am I demanding something from God? you're not a believer, that, that would be a great question to ask is, what would you want from a God? Perhaps that will reveal demands that you're making on him. But I think even for Christians, maybe, we've, maybe you've come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Or maybe Christians, because of all the demands that exist around us and the world and the pressures and the, just the trials and, and ups and downs of life, you find yourself demanding things from God, wanting something from God. Are we like that church in Corinth? Because the gospel isn't fitting in, we're, we're perhaps even suggesting that God might make some adjustments. I mean, maybe, maybe something needs to be corrected. Maybe we would demand from God peace, right? To live in a world where everybody gets along, we're all working together to build up humanity. Can't Jesus just bring us together? But what does Jesus do? He comes with a sword. He divides. John chapter 3 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That, that's not peace. That's not a sort of unified utopia. Maybe you would demand from God gain. You want God to give you riches and possessions and luxuries. You want stuff without guilt. Like, can't Jesus just bless us all? But we preach Christ crucified, who calls you to lose everything for his sake, who, who tells people to do things like sell everything they have and give it to the poor. Jesus calls you to choose a master. And if you choose money, you don't get Jesus. Now, Jesus will give us blessings, but they're beyond this world. Maybe you would demand from Jesus comfort. Right? You'd come to him and demand your healing. You would demand unity. You would demand ease. Can't Jesus just make my life better? But we preach Christ crucified who beckons you to take up your cross and follow him. To fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, to spend and be spent for the sake of other people's souls. Maybe you would demand from God security. All you want on, life, on earth is certainty, safety, predictability. 
Consistency. Can't Jesus just make sure nothing bad ever happens? But we preach Christ crucified whose way is narrow and hard, who calls Abraham to leave his family and calls Mary to endure shame and calls Paul to be weak. We preach Christ crucified who leads us through the valleys of the shadow of death so that we'd have to trust him to get us home. I mean, you can sit there and demand a savior that suits all your wants and desires, that meets all of your needs, but you realize you ought to make no demands of God. Christ did not come to satisfy our demands, but to meet our needs, which is to save our souls from sin and death and hell. Our need to be called out of this world that is broken by sin and death. I mean, after all, like, do you want signs? He rose from the dead. You want wisdom? He's the all-knowing God. If you want peace, he's the prince. You want gain? Jesus offers you an inheritance in heaven that will never perish. If you want comfort, he'll wipe away your tears. If you want security, nothing can snatch you out of his hands. If you want a lover or a friend or a brother or a father or a savior or a pastor or a God, you've got all of it in Jesus. He is all of those. He died for you and rose for you. He's yours. You have him. He's free. He's not calling us to make demands of him. He actually provides everything we might ever want. The key to faith, though, is that we don't demand from him, but receive from him. We have to keep this in the forefront of our minds. We can't lose sight of this because it's easy to get caught up in the demands of this world and think if I could just get through tomorrow, everything's going to be better. But this world is perishing. Tomorrow is perishing. Christ lives forever. He's calling us to live with him and by him and for him. This is why I say the very essence of faith is to demand nothing from God, but to receive everything he freely gives, to trust his ways and his provision, to be satisfied in what he might give you tomorrow and what he might take away. We, the Jews, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Verse 24 Sorry, verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But verse 24, to those who are called, Christ crucified, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is why I keep asking you, are you ready to be a scandal? Are you ready to be counted foolish and weak? You ready to be considered a moron? Well, you can be if you have Christ. Because Christ is the wisdom and power of God. Like, which do you want? A better tomorrow or the wisdom and power of God? I'll take the wisdom and power of God over anything and everything this world can create or produce or provide or demand. And then Paul throws a little twist in here. I find verse 25 very strange. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So it's sort of that question, what do you want? Do you want want the wisdom of man or the foolishness of God? Do you want the strength of man or do you want the weakness of God? What are you going to pick? I mean, but but after all, this is kind of funny, isn't it? Because is God foolish? Is God weak? I think the kids can help me with that. Kids, you know the answer to this question. Is God weak? No. (laughs) Right? He's not weak at all. Is, Is God foolish? No. We all know this. No, no. God is all-powerful. God's all-wise. We don't just say those things. Let's hear it from the Bible. Romans chapter 11. 
33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Is God foolish? No, God is all wise. Is God weak? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and the young man shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I mean, is there such a thing as the foolishness of God? No. Is there such a thing as the weakness of God? No. See, that's, this is Paul being, I think the technical word is tongue-in-cheek. He's speaking with irony with, I think I called it a couple weeks ago, sanctified sarcasm. And he's, he's being flippant on purpose. And, and I think this is, this is actually really useful for us as Christians because this is how we should talk to ourselves when we're feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling condemned, when we're feeling tempted. I mean, after all, who are you trusting in to help you through that? God? I mean, is, is God foolish? Is God weak? No. Like, you have wisdom and power from God. Even if there was such a thing as the foolishness of God or the weakness of God, it would be wiser and stronger than anything that man can produce or provide or demand. That's the point. So we preach Christ crucified, call it weak, call it foolish, but, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. We actually preach the power and wisdom of God. What the world deems foolish and weak is actually what God uses to meet our greatest needs, to save us from sin and death and hell, to help us know God, to teach us love and joy and purpose. All those are only found in Jesus. So for the called, for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift we get from God when we make no demands of him is Christ himself. And that gift is for anyone, anyone who would humble themselves before God. Notice the beauty of verse 24. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, both the people that were seeking signs and wisdom, both the people that would call the cross a scandal or call the Christians morons, who does God save? Those sorts of people. The gospel has a way of cutting through our demands and humbling us and bringing us to faith in God. See, even if your motives are messed up, even if you're tempted or afraid to compromise, even with all your sin and your folly, God has called you and loved you and made you new through the death and resurrection of his son. God doesn't, doesn't come to satisfy our demands. He calls us away from our foolish demands. He calls us out of the world by his grace. This is why we say for us, the preaching of Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Because that's where we actually find what's true and right and useful and needed and lovely. But notice the way that Paul says that in verse 24. You kind of have to follow because there's a lot of commas in this section. But we preach Christ crucified. That's in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. We might say dot, dot, dot. 
the power of God, right? or we preach Christ crucified, dot, 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 verse 24, Christ, the power of God. So we preach Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. Now, just maybe I'm making too much of this, but, but when he says that language, it's a strange way to say it because we could be saying we preach the message of Christ. Right? We preach the gospel of Christ, which is true. I, just, I did a whole sermon a couple weeks ago about how the message of the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. It's his wise plan to save people through the proclamation of Christ crucified. But he doesn't say we preach the message of Christ and it's the message of Christ that's the power and wisdom of God. He says it's Christ who is the power and wisdom of God. It's the person of Christ, the son of God. Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. So it's not just our message. It's actually the, the subject of the message. It's Christ. This is where, where Christianity gets really personal because Christianity is not merely a set of beliefs that you subscribe to. It's not merely an understanding of some message. It's, it's not joining a church, although all those things are good. Christianity is fundamentally about knowing the Christ. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's knowing God through knowing God the Son. This whole idea of, of a Christian being someone who knows Christ is quite wonderful. I, I find that I'm, I'm not even really sure how to fully express it, but that's okay because in verse 30 we run into this again, and I'm going to take a whole sermon to, to tease this out. But just maybe for today, while we're thinking ahead in that a couple weeks, just one simple question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Not just do you know about Jesus, not just do you identify yourself with Jesus' people, do you know Jesus? There is no more important question for you to ask yourself. I'd love to follow up with you if you want to visit about that, maybe talk about it over lunch today, or as you gather with our church for a picnic at five o'clock. But what you'll find is when you know Jesus, you know the wisdom and power of God. It, it is not merely that you have a friend, although Jesus is a great friend, it's that he satisfies your soul in a way that the world never can. Because if you know Jesus, the whole world can crumble around you and you know someone who has conquered sin and death and the devil. When you know Jesus, you will know and experience the power of God. I'm, I, again, it's, it's sort of uh, hard to explain, but I know there's been times in my life where, where people may have asked, hey, what good is Jesus now? Like, what good is the gospel now? You're telling me that it's going to be useful for you right now to rehearse the message of cruci crucifixion and resurrection? And, and it's funny because in those moments, often which are moments of suffering or uncertainty or doubt, when, when I look to Christ, I experience the wisdom and power of God in, in somewhat of an unspeakable way. The wisdom and power of God does not just calm my doubts, it actually satisfies my soul. That's a bit abstract. Let me give you a better example from the mouth of Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read of Paul facing his certain death. So 2 Timothy, probably written, I don't know, 10, 20 years after the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul is in a Roman prison. He's about to be beheaded by Nero. And what do you say? What do you say when you've lost everything for Christ. What do you say when you're staring down a sword? 
This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Where does that come from? That is not human reasoning. That is the wisdom and power of God. And I think that's what Paul is trying to instill in us, this, this sort of resolve in the face of death. If nothing else, resolve in the face of being mocked or being called foolish or weak. He's trying to instill us a sense of the wisdom and power of God that will sustain us through the suffering of this world. So that when we're tempted to fear man and to compromise the gospel, we can stand up and say, no, I've got Christ, the wisdom and power of God. And when looking at a lost and dying world around us and wondering what the solutions are, we can say, I've got it. It's Christ, the wisdom and power of God. So we preach, we live, no matter the cost. This is why I, I've described this letter um, as a, an exhortation or a living example of being in the world and not of the world. It's sort of taking Jesus' language from John 17. That, that's what it means to live by Christ, the wisdom and power of God, because you're in the midst of the world, but the world will see it as foolish and weak. You're in the world, but not of the world. If you can embrace that, if you embrace the foolishness of Christianity, you will see changes in your life. You will see the wisdom and power of God playing out. And I think a lot of Christians need to wake up to this reality. It seems to me that in our culture, many Christians live defeated we look around, we see moral decay, we see secularism, we read statistics. Maybe you, you can't even remember the last time someone was radically saved. And you start to think, just how it is. Right? The world's going from bad to worse. And then you start to despair. You say, well, maybe we can just get a little bit better tomorrow, so I'll just put my hope in politics. Or maybe I think being a Christian is still a good idea, so I'll just go ahead and do the Christian things that cost me nothing. Or you say, well, maybe God's just done saving sinners. They don't listen. They won't believe anyway, so I'm not going to tell anybody about the gospel. See, when you get to that point in your life, you are defeated. You might not admit it, but that's living defeated. But we're not defeated. And we're not weak. We're not foolish. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and the devil. He rules from heaven. I mean, we have all the wisdom and power of God. If we were only so bold as to live as if death has been defeated, as if God still saves people by the preaching of the gospel, if we were so bold to proclaim it and live by it, I think we'd be surprised at what God could do and would do. I don't, I don't want to be a calm, quiet, fearful, complacent Christian. I don't want to be just weird I want to be zealous and gracious and bold because Christ is my wisdom and power and that's what the world needs. These are wonderful gifts from God, but I find myself saying, okay, if Christ is wisdom and power, how do, I, how do I lay hold of that? How do I receive the gifts of wisdom and power? How do I get bold? How do I strengthen my resolve? Let me give you three simple things that you can do in response to what Christ has done. Number one, worship. Because if we start talking about 
being bold Christians, living by the wisdom and power of God, it's surprising how quickly that can become all about us and can come from us. But worship keeps us grounded knowing that power and wisdom only come from God. Worship is humbling ourselves before God, crying out for his mercy, seeking his favor, thanking him for his generosity and praising his name. It's receiving wisdom and power by making no demands of God, but simply praising who he is. So number one, worship. Number two, training. If you don't like that word, I'm, I, I don't really apologize. It's just the only word I could come up with. Like whatever you want to call it, we must know and apply the truth in every areas of our lives. We must speak it to our children. We must be learning and growing and changing. If Christ is to us the wisdom and power of God, why would we not be trained in Christ? You realize something is training you. Like something is shaping your life. Whether it's the news, whether it's an obsession with work or play, whether it's crippling anxiety or medical issues, whether it's an endless consumption of television and internet, you are being trained how to live. So let's be purposeful, Christians, as being trained in the gospel. That's the wisdom and power of God. Don't you want to be trained in that? We come on Sunday morning in a way to, be, to praise God, but also be instructed. I think a great place for you to grow in your training would be to join a Bible study. I think we have like four or five at our little church. Get into a Bible study. Be trained in the gospel. If the times we have don't work for you, let's start a new one. So we grow in the wisdom and power of God by worship and by training, and number three, by going. That is, by actually living in the world as Christians, by doing the things that we've been commanded to do, by trusting the promises that God has made, by telling people the good news, by telling people about the wisdom and power of God, by actively working to change your home and change your, your neighborhood and change your culture. And, and don't think for a second that just because the world sees it as foolish or scandalous that God won't do any good through you. I mean, I think that, that like, Paul is correcting the first Corinthians, right? The first, they were the Corinthians. There's been many of them. Paul was correcting them through this letter of the first Corinthians. To the, the, uh, I'm going to stop there. Paul was correcting them. How about that? Um, but, you know, he's, it's not just correction, right? It's also encouragement. It, it, it's saying, listen, don't forget that even though people will, will, may reject you, they may call it a scandal, they may call you a moron, they may see it as foolish and weak, don't forget that some will believe. Like if you're living and proclaiming the gospel of Christ, some will believe. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I mean, the good news of the gospel is that Jews and Greeks can be saved. It's that Republicans and Democrats can be saved. It's that rebels and good folks can be saved. It's that rich and poor can be saved. It's that skeptics, skeptics and seekers can be saved. The cross of Christ is no respecter of persons. God has done what everyone may see as scandalous and moronic. He saved people from their sin when they deserved death. He's brought us together as a family when we'd otherwise have nothing in common. He's changed the hearts and minds and lives of people. How? Not by wisdom, not by signs, by the death of his son. By providing a sacrifice for our sins, by loving us unto death, by teaching us humility, by rescuing us from the punishment of our sins. In a way, God has saved us by silencing our demands. By humbling us before us, God has saved us through the foolishness of the gospel. 
He saved us by the scandal of the cross, and he has saved us to Christ, the wisdom and power of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help our church to never be content just to be a little odd. We do some strange things. That is true. But God, help us to be a people who live by and preach Christ crucified, who embrace the foolishness of that, the weakness of that, so that people might hear and see and know the wisdom and power of God. Help us to be a people who are all about the Christ. Help us to keep Christianity about Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into light. You have called us out of death and into life. You have called us out of being demanding people and made us humble and given us life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.